Hello and welcome to another episode of COVID in Africa, a podcast looking at the continental response to COVID-19, where we pursue the systemic and underreported issues underlying the coronavirus crisis and how it's changing people's behaviors and attitudes on the continent. In this, our final episode, we will look at COVID-19 funds and how they are being distributed in South Africa and Nigeria. We will also look at some rays of hope which are starting to emerge from Kibera, one of Kenya's biggest slums. And later on, we will be joined by co-founder and former editor-in-chief of Sound Africa, Rasmus Bits. We will be discussing what happens behind the scenes of the COVID in Africa podcast and look to the future on what's next for Sound Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, J.D. Ramalab. South Africans woke up to some sad news over the weekend. It's news that many people suspected, but there was no evidence to prove it until now. The South African National Prosecuting Authority, the NPA, froze 28 bank accounts as unemployment insurance fund fraud of up to 6 million rand came to light. The money, meant to help unemployed workers during lockdown, was apparently paid out to the wrong account. Even though authorities have managed to seize 3 million rand of the money, no one has yet been arrested. But corruption and money laundering is not just a South African problem. Earlier in the week, I sat down with Peter Nganga, an award-winning journalist and human rights defender based in Abuja, Nigeria. Oh, uh, thank you. My, my name is Peter, Peter Nganga. Um, Nigerian journalist based in Abuja. I into advocacy and human rights reporting. Um, I do more of investigations into issues of public interest, um, socio-economic rights. I'm also a holistic security trainer, so I train people on digital security, physical security, and more especially psychosocial security. He's been investigating COVID-19 funds filing freedom of information requests to trace how billions of dollars which have been donated into the COVID response fund are being spent. He says he got the idea to follow the money from the 2014 Ebola outbreak when money donated to the Ebola response in three West African countries disappeared through graft. Back then, the International Federation of the Red Cross and the Red Crescent Societies reported that as much as $6 million or 5 million euros may have been lost. Then we saw what happened in other countries, Sierra Leone, Guinea, Liberia, where they had over 11,000 dead. And in the, that was an emergency period. So I observed how the emergency period led or exacerbated corruption in those particular three countries, Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone, where even government audits showed that millions of dollars um, were misappropriated. And this was money meant, or monies meant for, you know, to support the, to aid the fight against Ebola. And apart from that, that was one instance that led me to, to say, okay, you know what, as yeah, this COVID-19 pandemic has hit the world with an outbreak in Nigeria that a lot of funds 
were being well, we're being designated and appropriated. Um, but we were Nigerians were just only hearing of figures coming in, and yet we are not hearing of what is going out. And that raised my antennas back to what happened in Sierra Leone, Liberia, Guinea. And I say, you know what, let's look into this. Unlike in South Africa, where government bodies such as the NPA are the ones uncovering and investigating corruption, in Nigeria, it's journalists like him who have to play the oversight role and call government officials to account. In the South African case, that one was the UIF one. From what I understand, it was even from government investigation that these persons were or uh, the person that had this money was identified. It was not from like us doing our own investigation to bring out the people. So it was the government that did it. And that's why we are also expecting that our own anti-graft agencies by now, after three months of money's been dispersed in millions of dollars, that they should be able to show. Because they have shown that they have said that, yes, there are cases of misappropriation here and there, but they're still investigating. But after three months, they have not even brought out one person to say that we have found this and that. And I think that's also where we are very, very, um, like me personally, I'm, I'm very, very, dissatisfied and disappointed with the anti-graft agencies in how they are managing the COVID-19 funds. Peter says it has been difficult to trace how the money is being spent because the government is not necessarily following normal public procurement processes as the country is in a state of emergency. So what we are doing right now is we are sending freedom of information requests access to information requests because that is one of the guidelines one of the guidelines that the government brought up was that all disbursing ministries departments and agencies all governments organizations who are disbursing money public covid 19 funds uh, must respond to freedom of information requests within seven days and i can tell you that as far back as march we have sent scores of fois and we're not even getting responses you know that's one two in terms of money, holding somebody and saying, yes, we've caught you red-handed, this is one of the tricks that I would say is being deployed. You see, you can expend money on fixed assets, and you can also expend money on consumables. Fixed assets is easier to trace. Okay, so you bought 20 beds. Okay, let's go and check the beds at how much. Okay, this is the amount you bought the beds. Uh, okay, where? We check the price of where it was bought. We can, we can easily trace that. But when you're spending huge billions, millions of dollars on consumables is harder to trace because at the end of the day what are the consumables things that will disappear you can't trace them palliatives you give in terms of rice you buy rice you buy food stuff and you now give to say to people who are less privileged they are consumables they are consumed they are gone it's only it's limited to how much you can track that's two then three you don't even have information on who are the people being disbursed this cash to we are tracing the companies from the companies we will trace their assets we will trace the individuals. For Peter, corruption and misappropriation of funds meant for public use is a direct violation of people's human rights. In other words, the right to life. Money that is meant for solving people's needs and problems is being embezzled. So that's corruption. It affects everybody. It affects every industry, education sector, the, the walks in the roads, the bad roads, the S. Everything is about money that is affected when corruption is involved. And it's important because I am affected as well. When I don't have light, it's because there's corruption. Because we spend over $16 billion under one administration to fix our light problem, we're nowhere near there. Corruption, I like people to think about corruption as how they should ask themselves, how does corruption affect me? Don't look at it, oh, it's them. It's how does it affect me? 
if at the end of the day you are your your your, your legislator or whoever is there are giving money to solve your problem doesn't solve it, how does it affect me? It affects everyone. So I I take it seriously when I see that some people are are, are comfortable with stealing what can or what should be used to solve another person's problem. Meanwhile, they that are stealing it, they want that problem solved. They that are stealing it, when they are problem, they pray to God, God, solve my problem. Oh, God, send me a helper. Are you being a helper to those because God has given you the charge or the authority or the responsibility to oversee sums of money or oversee people who are over and they are chipping that money? No, no, no. Corruption affects everything. And that's why for me, anytime I have the opportunity of exposing corruption, I don't delay, I don't even hesitate. As governments continue to relax some COVID-19 measures, the impacts of lockdown on the economy are also starting to show. In South Africa, which already had high unemployment rates before COVID-19, the economic outlook is devastating. The government released unemployment figures for the first quarter of the year, which did not capture the impact of the lockdown. Those figures indicate that there are more than 10.8 million unemployed people in South Africa, an increase of about 400,000 during the first quarter. The unemployment rate for black Africans is 44%, while the unemployment rate for black African females is at 48%. According to economist Dumak Wule, after lockdown, South Africa will have more than 50% unemployment rates, which will make South African society unviable. Corruption and money laundering is only going to add fuel to the fire for struggling African economies, and as a result, many people are becoming desperate. Amid all the suffering, there are also signs of solidarity as people try to help members of their communities. A local tennis coach, Ibrahim Harun, is giving free tennis lessons to a section of Kibera's children in Nairobi, Kenya. A lack of space for children to play has made him use a rooftop of one of the buildings in Kibera for free lessons. Coach Haroon works as a coach at a club in upmarket Karen, but since the cancellation of many sporting activities, he has no work there anymore. Our producer Carl Odera caught up with him and the children. Uh, I've, I've worked with the German school, I've worked with the uh, International School of Kenya, I've worked with uh, Monte, Montessori, Stepping Stone, you know. Yeah, most of the international school, I do train their kids. Yeah. Tennis, yeah. yeah. Mm. So why did you start this uh, this uh, training for kids? Well, I started this simply to give what I have to the kids. Cause in my hood, in my in in my community, most people are talking about football, boxing, mm-hmm. basketball. Yeah. So I decided, no, tennis not there. I have to put that thing, and uh, I'm getting a lot of challenges. As you can see here, I have few few rackets, yeah. and the balls normally they hit it. Sometimes it go to the fence of the other people. 
that will get lost. Mm. How, how many kids uh, do you have here and what, what is the age, age range? Okay, I start training from uh, three and a half years to 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like, yeah. this guy is very young. Yeah, <laughs> very young. Yeah. These are beginners. Yeah. 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 How are they taking it? Uh, they are really enjoying it. They really like it. In fact, they are really disturbing their parents at home. We want to come to tennis. It's time for tennis. Mommy prepares. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about uh, the rooftop where you were, because uh, I went to look for you there. <laughs> well, I decided that it's one of the best places because, you know, it's fresh air, no movement of people, no disturbance. The kids concentrate a lot when you're in, in top there. Yeah. 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 So what did you, what kind of modification did you have? Because the ball could be flying out. Did you put a net? Uh, yeah, okay. In the rooftop there was, uh, it's, uh, the wall was here. I think you saw it. The wall and I was also, the surface was nice. So I used to draw the court. I draw it down. Yeah. And you, I see, I have the portable net. You see? This yeah. is the sand and the net is in the back there. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's worn, it's, uh, the net's almost worn out. So I'm planning if I can get another net, okay. which I have to look for it. Mm. Yeah, and that's money. Yeah. 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 Mm. I see your kids are very happy. They're yeah. Very, they're enjoying this. Yeah. Yeah. So what kind of what kind of what steps do you what, what are you teaching them today? Okay. Most uh, most of the things we are doing today is uh, the backhand and forearm. Right now, what they are doing is controlling. You know the grip. Bounce the ball. You get control. You send it back. Yeah. Handle the grip so that he can be able to do the forearm and then the backhand. Yeah. 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 She, she is doing so well uh, controlling yeah. the ball. Uh, that's Maggie. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Just stand there. Show him some skills. Oh, wow. Wow. That's nice. Move, move. That's good, Maggie. Let's go. Move, 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 Maggie. Yeah. Good. Let's go. Maggie. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, Maggie, what, what, what's your full name? Darling. Yeah? Magdalene. Magdalene who? Chulu. Chulu. Ah. How, do you, how much do you like tennis? Do you like your coach? Because he teaches me so many things. Mm -hmm. To be a friendly mm -hmm. and a good person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Does your mom like when you come here? Yes. Mm. So, uh, what do you do after this? I go at home and read my, my storybooks and books. Yeah. yeah. Where do you live? Huh? Where do you live? Where do you At stay? Makina. Makina. Oh, that's Makina in Kibera. Kibera. Yeah. What's, what's the name of your school? Ayani Primary School. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you play tennis in school? No. Mm -hmm. We play so, so many things like racing, athletics, football. Mm -hmm. nice. Which one do you like most? Racing. Racing? Yes. Oh, so you can run fast? Yes. Are uh, you always number one? Yes. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. There are, of course, many people like Coach Haroon across the African continent who are using their skills and knowledge to help communities cope with the impacts of the coronavirus pandemic. We encourage you to do the same in your neighborhood. There is always something you can do or someone you can help. There are community action groups or CANs which you can join or start in your communities via WhatsApp. If you are in South Africa and are starting to feel alone and helpless, please don't give up. Call someone. Here's a toll-free helpline number, 0800 21 22 23. 
0800-212223 or go to the South African Depression and Anxiety Group website for more information. This brings us to the end of our COVID in Africa series. We will be taking a break to review and recalibrate. But before we go, we're joined by Rasmus Bitz, a radio journalist, co-founder and former editor-in-chief of Sound Africa, who's been producing the show with me since the beginning of lockdown in South Africa to talk a bit more about some of the behind-the-scenes highlights. Welcome, Rasmus. Uh, great to have you join us, although you've been with us from the very beginning and the first of our team to take the COVID-19 test for our very first episode. How was that experience for you? <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for the welcome. Um, it was it was strange. Um, it was really strange um, because I think partly the test in itself was like, at once really uncomfortable, but also very easy and it was over quick. Um, so that in itself was actually not a big deal, although not pleasant. But there was this whole thing in those early days of the virus where we we didn't know, you know, we didn't know what what it was if we even do or still. But I mean, <laughs> there was that thing like I thought I had the virus, and I thought maybe you know, and I thought I got like a little taste of what it might feel like to have <laughs> a stigmatized illness, you know. <laughs> um, I was like almost feeling guilty, you know, going to the doctor. And yeah, so uh, it it was psychologically a bit, it was a weird time and a weird thing to do. But but at the same time, you know, it's like one thing was, it doesn't matter, I find like when, when you're using it in a story, then you can always justify even a little bit of uh, discomfort because you know it'll make the story better. Yeah, I mean, have you, as we've reported, we also saw that there was many conspiracy theories surrounding this you know like one of them involved a man who was warning people not to get tested because uh, the test contained the coronavirus itself Um, you didn't have those thoughts as you sat in the chair (laughs) no not not those Um, although I do understand to a degree better now um, particularly after you know we made an an episode about conspiracy theories and I uh, spoke to like people that knew more about it and so I guess I, I kind of get the uh, what leads to these conspiracies but I'm also actually to be honest still a bit terrified of the consequences because um, I imagine for example that we might get a vaccine and then people are not going to take it because they're afraid that this is you know there are many conspiracies out there that i see every day on on the internet and you know so that to me is a bit scary but i wasn't myself i'm i i don't really believe in in those conspiracy theories i haven't really been convinced by any of them okay but what has been the highlight for you if like testing was like a weird experience what would be um you know something that you learned that you didn't know before starting to produce this like what are your highlights and lowlights i think maybe to say that i'll i'll try and describe how we are recording this because the listeners won't see it right like we are sitting actually at the moment right we are sitting about 300 kilometers from each other in each our little 
very much non-radio studio setup. We're like I'm where I'm sitting is like just at at my um, at my table, um, and I've got like a microphone that I'm holding myself. There's no like sound insulation. There's none of that, and um, and and you're sitting in in your room uh, in a similar way. We haven't really been. Uh, at the office, we haven't been able to use any professional facilities during this time, and 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 at the same time, we've gotten like sound in from all from many different African countries, and so I so I think the highlight for me maybe has been what we have learned about how one can produce um, radio that sounds okay in much less than optimal circumstances i think there's something about this you know adversity and learning and growing from it um, that that i hope that i think is a highlight other than that to be honest the whole covid not not the work on the series but the whole situation uh i, I, don't, I don't think it has many highlights i prefer life without outside of the pandemic um, definitely. I think for me, it has been a very emotional experience. Like I feel like I went through so many highs and lows producing it and having like um, flashbacks to other moments in my life, you know, especially when we're reporting around police brutality and, um, you know, femicides or violence against women and children um it's been very like it's been an emotional journey but i think a, a rewarding one i don't think i would have actually um <laughs> produced anything like this if it wasn't for covid <laughs> yeah yeah no i i agree i mean we didn't plan to do it and then it just seemed like it would be a mistake not to um and honestly I mean, I'm a, there was a few weeks where I was doing something else and were not actually on the team. But other than that, I've I've been assisting you um, the whole time. And I must say, to be honest, to have that regular rhythm of like every week we have to put something together is has actually been like a nice thing in a way. You know, like we know how many people have been unemployed have been laid off and haven't been able to go out and do their business and whatever and and this has almost like been a little bit of a a safe you know harbor <laughs> in a very uncertain yeah, time us. yeah for us personally yeah the good news is we are not uh going away completely we'll be bringing you a new podcast series which I am personally very excited about, um, but Rasmus, you, I think you might have the details. Can you tell us more about it? Uh, yes, absolutely. So um, the next series that um, we're putting out is uh, going to be called One Night in Snake Park. And it is essentially an investigation of a killing of a 14-year-old boy who died in Snake Park, Soweto, Johannesburg in 2015. Um, when you mention the story, almost everybody in in South Africa will remember, oh yeah, there was that time where a Somalian shopkeeper, a Somali shopkeeper shot a 14-year-old boy and then it started one of these waves of xenophobic violence. But what people normally don't remember is anything more than that. Uh, they don't really remember what's the name of, of the boy or the family. They don't remember what happened to the shopkeeper who shot. They don't remember if it was ever really found out 
what the story was. Um, and there is a pretty clear reason for that, and that is that no one really found out. Like, it was never a story in, in the media. Um, and we kind of set out, um, this is a collaboration primarily with a couple of different people, but primarily it's um, Tanya Pampaloni and Elliot Moleba, who are uh, respectively a journalist and a researcher, um, and they actually wrote together. They were they were writing a chapter in a book about CPU Mahori, um, and felt that they had started there. That there were so many unanswered questions. So um, you know, together we went out on that journey to try and answer those questions. It sounds like uh, it's a very relevant topic um, to be having right now uh, in South Africa, particularly with like the, uh, you know, frequent flare-ups of xenophobic violence. And then also globally, like looking at what is happening in the US um, with the Black Lives Matter protests. Absolutely. I mean, that was never something we could we could have timed or thought about because we started the work on this like way before. But it feels like when I'm sitting now editing some of those tapes, um, it feels incredibly relevant. It feels like, all right, there's an echo through all these Black Lives Matter protests because at the core of it, that's what this story is about as well. It's about, um, I guess, why some lives are worth less uh, than others, why some lives seems to not matter very much at all, um, which, um, I mean, we've covered this in the COVID series and uh, and in general, like in South Africa and, and many other places, but now South Africa is what I know most about. That's the daily lived reality, you know. Definitely looking forward to listening to the series. Um, thank you very much, uh, Russ Mitzbitz. That's all we have time for on COVID in Africa this week, a podcast brought to you by Sound Africa. A special word of thanks to all the journalists who have contributed to our show in Kenya, Nigeria, Central African Republic, Mozambique, South Sudan, Senegal, and Uganda. It's been a pleasure working with you all. To all our special guests and analysts, thank you for making deeper conversations possible. To our team at Sound Africa, sound editor Rasmus Bitz, reporter Carlo Dera, story editor Brittany Kesselman, and everyone working behind the scenes to make the show possible. We couldn't have done it without you. Here's Simpiwa Dana with Masibambaneni, or Let's Hold Each Other, featuring the legendary Salif Keita in her latest album, Bamako, a call to end Afrophobia. <laughs> As always, we welcome your feedback on all our episodes, so please do get in touch with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also subscribe to our newsletter by going to our website at www.soundafrica.org. We'd love to hear from you. I've been your host, Chedira Malapa. Merci beaucoup, Jerejef. Muito obrigada. Shukran jazilin. Asante sana. Baya danki. Enkosi. Siabonga. Thank you for listening and stay safe and sound.